0: everyone. Thank you for joining APQC's podcast. Today's podcast is going to be a Q&A summary of a webinar that we hosted on Wednesday, November 18, 2015. Uh, the webinar was Innovative Techniques for Process Improvement. Uh, and the presenters that we had were Holly Like Copeland and Jeff Barney. Um, so today we're going to go through the questions that were not answered in that webinar um, and answer them in this format. We will also have them answered um, on our knowledge base as well. But let me- uh, go ahead and introduce the uh, folks that we have answering questions today. So on the phone we have Holly Lake Hogland. She is the Process and Performance Management Research Program Manager. Uh, we have Jeff Barney, who is a Process and Performance Management uh, Practice Lead for APQC, um, also a senior consultant in our Advisory Services Group. And finally, we have Lauren Trees with us. Lauren is the Knowledge Management Research Program Manager here at APQC as well. So we've got all of, the, all of our bases covered. We've got all the, the, the programs represented here on this podcast. Uh, so I'm just going to go through these and I'm going to um, ask the questions that our audience members from the live webinar asked. And Jeff, Polly, and Lauren, you all can um, answer the questions that you would like, that you feel fit to. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So question one was, what was the importance or value for using financial incentives for crowdsourcing?
1: I say I'm happy to tackle that one first if uh, you guys are fine with that. Um, the importance or of value of the financial incentives was not the actual that you're using a financial incentive itself. It's but for crowdsourcing and things along, uh, crowdsourcing hack days, things along those lines. You, the idea is to kind of create an environment of friendly competition and fun, um, and some kind of prize would also help keep people engaged. Um, and then, The real thing that most of the organizations we work with that stress was actually not that the financial incentives were the main call, it was actually the engagement with the employees and letting them be part of the project team that developed the solutions was actually what drove a a lot more of the satisfaction.
2: Yeah, Holly, I I would agree. I think that it's not individual financial incentives, a reward or or some increase in salary per se, but it's ensuring that there's uh, time, funded time available and the ability to participate, as Holly said. That's really, I think, the key there, um, being able to show that the organization is committed to supporting not just the crowdsourcing itself, but getting to actual solutions. So uh, people need the ability to take work time and apply it towards working towards these solutions.
0: Perfect, thank you, Jeff and Holly. Uh, the next question, um, also about crowdsourcing, is crowdsourcing the same as focus groups or brainstorming exercises? And if not, what is the difference between them?
1: I say I'm happy to take that one again uh, for the first round at least. Um, I, they're very, very similar, but they're not the exact same. Um, and the real major difference is, is that crowdsourcing is following kind of the tenet of open innovation, which is that great ideas can come from anywhere. Um, And focus groups and brainstorming exercises, on the other hand, are are carefully where you pick out your subject matter experts. You pick out a certain amount of people to solve a specific problem. Um, There's positives and negatives about both of them. Crowdsourcing is better when you're trying to appeal to everybody and you don't know who your subject matter experts are or you just kind of want to broaden the scope of potential answers. Crowdsourcing is also fairly useful when you don't know what the exact problem is because that, you know, appealing to the masses will help you uncover that information. Like I said, focus groups and brainstorming exercises are much smaller, manageable groups who have a lot of knowledge and depth of information to address a very specific problem.
0: Great, thanks. Anybody have anything else to add to that? Not me. Okay, so uh, here's the next one then. Have you or do you know anyone? That's used Yammer or any other corporate social network to build a community practice, or COP. Um, this individual who has a question is trying to start one up with Yammer or Sh- and or SharePoint um, and would like some feedback or benchmarks or any information that you have. Hi, this is Lauren. I'll take
3: a first stab at that question. The short answer is yes. We have seen lots of organizations using Yammer and other similar Uh, you know, enterprise social networking tools as the basis for the discussion capabilities in their communities of practice. I think there's a couple of benefits or just differences between using a Yammer type tool and using a traditional community discussion forum in a tool like SharePoint or something like that. First of all, you tend to, if you're asking for ideas or and, you know, responses to a question, get a broader uh, you know, opportunity to talk to different people in Yammer, because it might not just go out to people in that community of practice, but also people who follow that, those people or people who follow the particular topics that have been tagged in that question. So you just tend to get a, a broader perspective. And we also find that organizations find it useful for quick recommendations, you know, getting quick answers to, to quick questions versus maybe some really detailed technical back and forth, that kind of thing. So we've seen some organizations that have entirely replaced their traditional discussion forums with a Yammer type capability, and others that have both for slightly different purposes running, you know, aligned but on different tracks. So you might go to ask some questions in a community discussion forum and others in uh, related social networking capability.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Lauren. Holly or Jeff, do you all have anything to add to that from a process side or did Lauren cover it?
2: I think I'll just add briefly, um, how, or, uh, Lauren covered most of this. but. When you think about a community of practice, it's it's more than just uh, discussion threads. You may find that they have expertise location. They may have some discrete projects where they're developing some new tools or standards or methodologies. They may have uh, you know the the uh, discussion threads. They may have a repository of content that is kind of the system of record for best practices, lessons learned, and other types of things. Communities come in all shapes and sizes, and so the technology used. Uh, some of the considerations are, you may need to control the material and, and, the, and the access and, and so you want to be careful about the tool sets you use and whether or not you end up with a distributed set of tool sets that make it difficult. In other words, a one-stop shop for the community is more effective, but you also have to ensure the integrity and the, and the linkage to process documentation, standards and other materials to enable and, and make the community thrive and have project spaces in and, and other forms. So, so with all that being said, I think that, um, you know, there's many innovative tools out there, many of them cloud-based, et cetera, uh, but you have to look at what is the overall purpose, the approach and, and activities that the community is going to support, and then pick the right technologies that give the control and, and management within the organization. Um, so, uh, high-level view there, but, Don't just go after the innovative cloud technology or or something else uh, and only focus on one aspect for your community. Think about the the depth and breadth that needs to be supported.
3: Yes, and I would definitely say the organizations that have moved more towards Yammer for their community discussion capabilities have had long conversations with their IT groups to make sure that those things are secured and that they're having conversations that
0: um, you know, have the right level of security for, for what they're doing. Great. Thank you. Okay, the next question. Have you ever seen a healthcare facility adapt to uh, this approach for process improvement? Now, this was a question asked during the webinar, so this approach is... Um, I don't remember what they were referring to. Holly, did
1: you have any context on that? I was going to say uh, that is kind of open-ended there, but we did discuss three main approaches in the webinar. And the first one was crowdsourcing. Uh, the second one was the hackathons or hack days. And then the last one was communities of practice. So maybe if you want to kind of look at it from those three different areas, does that work for everyone?
2: Sure.
1: All right. Um, I can take the first step. I've never seen any healthcare facility in particular do crowdsourcing or hack days. Um, my experience with communities of practice is, is not nearly as much as Lauren or Jeff's. Um, what I can say, though, is that most service organizations have uh, tend to have an easier time and are usually more likely to kind of use those approaches um, because they're usually looking for things that are very customer focused um, and that tends to be a little bit more top of mind with uh, service organizations. Um, do you guys have anything else to add on those areas or communities of practice in the healthcare
2: space? Yeah, Jeff here. Um, I would say that to, to your point, Holly, um, the... The healthcare payers, the insurance companies and and systems, uh, they tend to be more um, aligned with concepts like communities of practice and and the overall kind of process and and service improvement things that you would see there. When it comes to an actual facility with a healthcare provider, whether it's a clinic or a hospital, um, I have not seen those like hack events, et cetera, personally, not to say there haven't been, um, and even less of of a penetration of the communities of practice because they are, Hands-on, kind of, or tip of the spear, if you use a military term, uh, actually providing the service there. Uh, but the larger healthcare systems, um, I, I think, back to that first side, looking at overall uh, quality of care across uh, departments and, and facilities, etc. That's where you see communities and, and these types of improvement initiatives more prevalent. So um, hopefully that gives some context. Uh, but but in a local clinic, et cetera, or, or hospital, maybe maybe not as prevalent, um, that, that umbrella across uh, organizations and communities where I see it more prevalent.
3: Hey, this is Lauren. I think we are seeing an increased interest across healthcare organizations in tools like Communities of Practice. One of the only examples I can think of that we've captured in our knowledge base, I know that the Mayo Clinic does use... Um, Yammer and some social networking capabilities to enable some innovation conversations and sharing of new ideas across, uh, you know, people who might be working on a particular, uh, you know, treatment and things like that. So, so that's one example that's in our knowledge base. Awesome. Does
1: that cover it, Holly? Did you have anything else? Actually, I did. Just completely. Uh, We actually did a webinar, um, I think last year with one of the hospitals. I think it was, was it St. Jude? I can't remember. But they did start using communities of practice as part of their process improvement groups. And they, uh, because it was about quality focused, sorry. Um, And what they did was they created uh, COPs for each of their work stream areas. And that was where the groups would get together to discuss the processes, identify ones they needed to improve and which ones they needed to standardize. Uh, one of the things we will do f- with this webinar, with uh, this podcast, is do a summary as well, and I can make sure we include the link to that webinar as well. Perfect. Great. Thank you.
0: Okay, I will keep moving along then. Um, how do you avoid problem statements that are relevant and strategically important to senior leadership, but far beyond the scope of most of the organization?
1: I, say, I think that's a that's probably that's a rather difficult question. Um, There's a simple answer, and I guess probably a little bit more complicated answer. Uh, The simple answer is the idea behind most of these techniques is just simply that, is to be able to engage your employees in things that are of value to the business. Now, problem statements that, you know, we can put them in terms that a little bit more broadly appeal. Uh, Like I said, one example we've seen over and over again is, you know, what can the organization do to become more customer-centric? What can the organization do to, you know, use data and analytics more effectively. Um, it's a matter then of just kind of how you phrase the questions. If it's just something that's only important to senior leadership, then maybe crowdsourcing or uh, hack days or any of these may not be the right forum then for the conversation. Um, instead, it could be something as simple as, you know, doing a work, group, a work group, doing a focus group, or doing some kind of brainstorming session where you're picking senior management to participate. Uh, Lauren and Jeff, do you guys have anything else to add to this one?
2: You know, Jeff here, um, I would say that it, it's almost not a problem if you think about it. Um, in other words, the, these types of activities are really meant to not constrain. So this concept of um, far beyond the scope. If you're looking for innovation, if you're looking for people to think outside the box, uh, you, you sometimes want to have that broader kind of uh, you know, no constraint type of, of problem statement. The key, though, is that you have to understand how to filter and and then focus uh, to take the results and ensure that they are viable for the business and fit the overall long-term scope. But uh, to to a certain extent, uh, if you try to to tailor the problem statement too discreetly, uh, you may minimize the overall impact of of the crowdsource or jam or or event. So uh, I I think that uh, you, you focus it on the back end more than the front end in the filtering and, and
0: actioning. All right. Okay. So let me move to the next one. Uh, can you use a subset of the organization for a hackathon to solve a problem? In other words, is there something between the, in quotes, whole organization hackathon and the narrow brainstorm?
1: I say, yes, there definitely is um, a difference, and there's other ways you can do it. Uh, For example, some organizations use hackathons specifically for product development and they don't engage the whole organization. They usually involve uh, marketing people, the product development team and even sometimes the supply chain people as well as customers and external subject matter experts to have a hackathon to solve. We want to look for a new product X or we want to prove the sustainability of this product line or something along those lines. Um, and they continue to have the same kind of hackathon environment. Um, also, Liberty Bank, even though it was a crowdsourcing exercise, they didn't submit it to all of the organization. They did it specifically for one division. So again, it's a matter of keeping the scope of what's going to be beneficial for the organization. Now, the trade-off is the more narrow the scope you have as to who's going to be involved, you know, the less out-of-the-box ideas you have and other ideas you may be cutting off that
2: could be beneficial. Yeah, I, I totally agree with, with what Holly said. Uh, I think as you're designing the event itself, you, you say, what's the, the appropriate audience? And if it's the entire organization, all employees, if it's uh, just engineering and scientific people, if it's marketing and product development, um, you know, what is the right mix and match? Is it just in one location or one region or is it globally? All of those are questions you can ask, and, but you can um, you know, target it such that you're getting the right audience there. The one aspect we may have not touched on is you can also include external to the organization vendors, suppliers, consultants, even even some of your customers in these types of events. Um, And those have been very, very successful for some organizations. So a part of your pre-planning is to identify the right audience and participation and then how you're going to engage that that audience And, and it can be all or a subset.
0: Great, thank you. Um, this one, um, how often do you find organizations are resistant to providing food and other engagement enhancers um, or inducers because of the expense? And Holly, I remember in your presentation you mentioned that uh, kind of one of the best practices for these events is that you provide some kind of snack or lunch or refreshment or something, so I think that this is what that question is directed towards.
1: Thank okay, you, and also because some of the incentives like Liberty Bank used, the idea behind these kind of events is usually twofold. Either number one, you have an organization that wants to kind of establish a collaborative, innovative uh, culture, and or you have an organization that already has that culture and you're using it as a mechanism to reinforce it or have activities for a specific purpose. Now, either way, it becomes kind of a, a cultural change management issue. If the organization is not willing to kind of invest in some of these things to help motivate employees, um, even feed them during the hack days, things along those lines, then that's kind of a bigger picture issue as far as then management's not really paying attention to the needs for the change management to help push the culture that it's asking for. Um, and that's kind of outside of the scope of then using these things. You have to create kind of the buy-in with the organization or a you know, leverage the need from the organization to change its culture. that becomes kind of a bigger conversation you have to have. Um, Do you guys have anything else to add on that idea?
2: No, again, I think it's uh, what you find is that when there's the kind of physical come and contribute, whether it's in a room, in a cafeteria, whether it's in the lobby of the building, uh, you find that there are, uh, you know, a a greater commitment to providing some sort of refreshments, et cetera. Obviously, you know, with, with budgets, et cetera, who's funding it, it, um, it it's just going to be driven by uh, the, what's there. Uh, as Holly has said, um, showing that the organization is committed and building that kind of culture and environment around this that says, you know what, we're willing to invest and bring you together and, and, and put a little bit mo- of money up front uh, helps to contribute to the overall engagement and, and flow. Uh, but I've seen uh, events where there wasn't any incentive, there wasn't any money but people still want to contribute, uh, It just you, you may not find as many people or, or uh, it may limit your, uh, your capacities a little bit.
1: So actually that's a great point there Jeff, um, even if you don't have the, the financing backing that, instead one of, like we said earlier one of the major motivators a lot of the organizations who do these things say is also the career development aspect for employees. By putting them in control of the project team or having them be a part of the project team that's going to develop the solutions, it is great for their career. It's also great to keep them engaged and, and feel like they're in control over what are changing in the processes.
0: Okay. Anybody else? All right. Uh, what technology do you use to support crowdsourcing and to mine ideas?
1: Oh. That, I, that question is as broad in spectrum as the way organizations communicate with their employees. Um, so for the Liberty Bank example, you know, they used a submission form that the organization could then email or, or send through the website to the corporate development team. Other organizations use formal communities of practice. Some groups will create forum discussions. Uh, some are more complex and have miniature sites where they're having ongoing discussions, such as IBM's JAMS, to put forward ideas, vote on the ideas. Um, so again, it, it really kind of varies depending on the organization.
0: Okay, I'll move on to the next question. What is your opinion about um, success factor or Jam as a software Uh, as a software tool to be used in communities of practice.
3: Hey, this is Lauren. I think the last question and this question, I just want to say, don't get too caught up in terms of a specific toolkit that you're using and worrying about step one being to go out and buy a specific software tool to get started with some of these ideas, whether it's communities or whether it's, you know, the more innovation side. I I think what we've seen in our research is that organizations tend to start with the tools that they have. So if you're looking to get innovative ideas through a community of practice, I wouldn't worry about putting a separate software tool on top of that to mine ideas and, and generate ideas. You can probably use whatever you're using within the community, whether it's a discussion forum or monthly webinars and getting ideas through those channels that you already have in place. And that's going to make the most sense because it's already integrated into the way people are working and communicating within the community. And you know it avoids the change management issues of putting a separate software tool out there. I mean, obviously, if you want to do something to get innovative ideas and crowdsource more at the enterprise level. It may make sense to put some software in place but uh, you know I would just say to, to start small and start simple.
0: Jeff,
2: okay. do you have
0: anything to add?
2: I, I spot on agree with, with what Lauren said there leverage what you've got. Um, you know it, people are one already comfortable and familiar with it so it's not that they're gonna have to learn a new tool. Uh, two, you've probably already worked out all the access control and security issues, data security issues, um, and then if you get into more ambitious uh, jam sessions or crowdsourcing events later on, you may need to segregate and set up some some unique environments for those. But uh, avoid trying to overdo the technology, as Lauren said.
1: I agree completely. Perfect. All right,
0: I'll move on to the next one then. Um, If it's often difficult to establish a culture of continuous improvement, how can you start a community practice so people see its value and are more likely to use it in their um, everyday, day-to-day job? This is Lauren. I, I think you want
3: to make sure that every community that you start or that you launch has a clear business purpose, and it it really needs to start there rather than letting anybody out there create a community for, for any reason to really have an idea of what you want that community to accomplish, at least if you are looking at having some more formal communities. I mean, lots of organizations have groups where people can share ideas and they don't have that clear, you know, business charter, but for these, you know, it's real community of practice and a community of purpose, you want to have a, a reason, and hopefully that is laid out in a charter that can be reevaluated annually to make sure that the community stays on track and, and is providing value both to the participants and to the organization as a whole. So I think you want to communicate the what's in it for me for the community as well as for the, the, the broader business purpose. Um, you know, in a lot of cases that's providing some learning and professional development opportunities. Maybe it's getting people faster answers to technical questions so that they can complete their work more quickly, more effectively. Well, you know, whatever the reason that community exists is, you know, having that out there. And then capturing some early success stories. Uh, you know, you may not have a lot of metrics to share, but at least if you have a few stories of situations where the community has provided real value and trying to get advocates within the communities to tell their peers about it and to communicate those success stories as well as any top-down communication that you're doing. But all of that's going to take you pretty far in terms of showing people you know what the value is rather than them just feeling like it's, a, it's another thing that you want them to go do without them understanding the purpose behind it.
2: Yeah, I would add on to that that I've seen some organizations that have actually gone into their business processes and they've built in the interactions with the communities of practice. At this point, go to the community and find the most recent best practices. Uh, At this point, in your peer review, take it to a a set of subject matter experts in the community and have them peer review your work product. At this point, harvest what you've created and make it available to other members via the community so that others can benefit from your lessons learned or new templates. So designing that actually into the work processes of day-to-day employees uh, where they know that the community is a source for helping them get their work done proving that they've done the right thing, and actually helping others through what they've learned, very, very powerful. And I've seen a number of organizations that have designed in those community interactions to the processes, and also uh, training, um, where there's training activities and and instructional uh, activities where it points to and leverages the community during actual training events so that people see that they should be leveraging that as a source for tying together across the organization. So those are some ways I've seen it discreetly built into the work that's being done.
0: All right. Let's keep moving on. Um, How do you develop an improvement culture in an organization where there is no specific process improvement focus?
1: Actually, a lot of things Lauren just lined out are are the exact same answers. It's about identifying the value of process improvement in a lot of ways. Then kind of establishing a pilot group or somebody who would be willing to kind of test it out, um, conduct some process improvement effects, and then, you know, developing the success stories and sending that out in communications with the groups to kind of get buy-in, get momentum, and get, you know, support behind why this is beneficial to the organization in general. Um, The other a part of that is, is you really have to then engage senior management is that it is a priority and it is something that the organization needs to focus on um, developing you know those pilot programs can help create a business case to take that to upper, to upper management as well to kind of help push on what the value of it is
0: alright um, let's see here how can you garner senior management approval to organize
1: such modern ideas into practice. At Liberty Bank was a pretty good example of that, is that they went in with a business case to senior management and showed why the, the checklist approach was not working. You know, how they were not having an engaged workforce, um, that they were not able to improve their performance because you know the organization was looking specifically to improve its overall performance and its customer centricity and showing them directly why the techniques they were using weren't improving the performance. Um, they went then and pulled in some documentation, they found some case studies organizations that used these approaches and some of the benefits they got out of it, and then they built that into a full-fledged business case and got a permission to do a pilot program, which is why they didn't do an organization-wide crowdsourcing effect. They took one of the business divisions. They had a two-month crowdsourcing event with, you know, I think total cost as far as the incentives went for them was maybe $500. So they started small and used that then to kind of tra- gain traction and show the value of it. Okay, Jeff
2: or Lauren, anything to add there? No, I think the the key here is that um, if you go back to what is the organization's challenges, what are they trying to accomplish? Is it? Is it, do we need to be more innovative to keep up with the competition? Do we need to find ways to, to you know, uh, get more, uh, you know, higher performance, lower cost? Um, you know, are, are we struggling with the supply chain? But based on whatever those larger issues are, the real question is, what's, as, as uh, Holly said, if, if the traditional approaches aren't yielding the benefits there, the, the, the part of the packaging to senior management is to say, look at the fabulous resources we have across the board and that are, uh, that are available uh, and are we really tapping into the, those resources and so these events for typically a very low commitment of time and, and money, especially if you start out small, uh, you can actually start to, as, as Holly's talked about several times, identify those experts and those people that have the passion and, and you don't have to decide and know up front, oh here's the five people for a focus group, let's put them in a, in a room and see if they come up with something brilliant you can actually go out and, and, and learn and leverage the broader workforce more effectively. So I think showing them that it's an alternate avenue to engage, identify, and move forward uh, is, is very powerful. And then leveraging and pointing to some of those examples of IBM or, or other organizations that have used it effectively, uh, it opens up their eyes to the possibilities, and, and I think you can do it at a very, very low price point.
0: Perfect, thanks. Uh, Holly you might need to give some context on this next question here Uh, the question is doesn't time process to performance evaluation of employees stifle creativity?
1: Right. Uh, the context of that was is one of the studies we did earlier this year was looking at using process frameworks Um, but we also asked questions about process improvement cultures within it and one of the big things that we saw was that most organizations kind of are really good at the initial stages of process the process journey. They're great at designing their processes, defining them, creating standardized maps across the organization, but they kind of stop once they get into actually measuring and monitoring the performance of their processes. Um, and one of the key correlations that came up in the analysis was that most organizations also don't tie performance of their processes through the different levels. Um, including at the employee level, Um, so that's kind of where that came from, Uh, as far as addressing the question, I would say no, um, because I think in the long run, what you're doing here is by tying it to the performance, you're able to identify areas of improvement, Um, I don't necessarily, once you establish performance, that will help you focus more creatively, rather than kind of out of the box creativity,
2: but um, yeah, yeah let, me, let me add a little bit here Holly. Um, yeah, I've seen an organization where they looked at it and they said, we need our employees to engage in this process and so we need to show them that we care about it and, and seeing it as an element in the evaluation of individuals um, gave them part of that cultural buy-in uh, and, and in particular for more senior and, and um, experienced people. to to show them and and tie them into this process and say we expect you to engage and be part of this process, um, even if it's uncomfortable, it's something that you didn't do 30 years ago uh, because you are one of our leaders, you're one of the folks that can help us to engage and to filter and to get the benefits from these processes. So so I've seen organizations where they've actually, especially for mid and senior level kind of subject matter expert people and, and leaders. Uh, they have made it an explicit element that says we expect you to contribute to these events and to make them successful. Uh, and and it, again, back to that overall, it, it helps to build the engagement and shows the commitment the organization has to these types of activities, driving them forward for the future.
1: Thanks, Jeff. You kind of you just put out there what I uh, was kind of struggling with. Um, the other thing about the performance evaluations, it helps reinforce what's important to the organization. So it gives the employees then a, a somewhere to focus their creativity. All
0: right. Um, how, <clears throat> excuse me. How can we motivate disengaged employees to, to participate in techniques like crowdsourcing? It's
1: a good one. It is a good one. I think some of the easy ways that organizations can do that is some of the incentives. So people may participate because they want to win that hundred dollar financial incentive or they want to work on the processes. Um, Further more than that is uh, Liberty Bank again is a great example because celebrating the the interim wins um, throughout will continue to get employees more engaged and create enthusiasm. So, you know, they initially had so many responses within the first couple of weeks, but then they started sending out in real time You know, some examples or, you know, we got 30 responses that are great and they did site visits where they came in with the groups that had participated or sent in some of the responses early on. They came in and brought them t-shirts with the bank logo on it. Um, Again, it's just little things to keep it public and to celebrate it throughout, you know, the two month time period that you're doing the crowdsourcing thing.
2: Yeah, and I think that... uh, just building on that, uh, you cannot force a disengaged employee to engage, uh, but you can give them the opportunity to engage. And, and sometimes those subtle little incentives are, are powerful to at least get them there. Um, but I think the, the follow through, the support and follow through is what's essential there. And, and if you show that their ideas are, are evaluated, that you had a contribution, and they may get that opportunity to join a project team to actually take something forward. Uh, that may take a disengaged employee and make them engaged, uh, and that's a win uh, Anytime you can do that. Uh, there are some disengaged employees you may never get to, uh, but at least you've tried to engage them and give them alternatives rather than their standard day job. So, uh, so I think there's the, it's a powerful technique. And, and back to what Holly and I have said several times, people that have passion will naturally uh, get involved And you start to identify those that are truly engaged and can drive the future. Um, And and you will also see that those that won't engage um, may never. Uh, And it helps you to understand your workforce better and leverage it more effectively. So uh, lots of different intrinsic values that come from these types of events.
3: Yeah, I think you also just want to look at whether there are any structural or cultural barriers that are preventing people from participating. Rather than just assuming that they're disengaged, maybe they don't have the right equipment or the right time or the right opportunity. Or, you know, if you're dealing with a global workforce, maybe they come from a slightly different cultural background and they're not, you know, they might need a little bit more communication and change management to help get them engaged. So looking at all those different things before just assuming that people are, are disengaged and, and then just to echo what Um, What Jeff was saying about the follow-through, I think when people see those ideas actually being used, then that's a really powerful motivator to participate.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Um, The next question is, do you see different process improvement techniques being used at different process improvement maturity levels? Um, And are there ones that any of you would particularly recommend for a uh, just uh, Just Getting Started effort?
1: I think we've seen different uh, techniques used at different process management maturity levels which kind of reflect the process improvement culture as well. For example, when organizations tend to just be getting started on the process journey, a lot of the improvement efforts tend to be a little bit more structured than the ones we're saying here um, and a lot of, oftentimes they will come from the top down. So the organization focuses on these are our valuable processes, Here's uh the performance gaps between them and let's come up with finding out why they are not performing as well as they are and move on from there. Um, again, un- unless the organization is specifically wanting to actively engage its employees right off the bat, which doesn't tend to happen, usually probably till what would you say, like level four, so once you are starting to manage the performance level more. Jeff?
2: Yeah, I mean o- overall I would say that None of these techniques are restricted to any level, uh, but as Holly said, um, as you get to higher levels of process management maturity, uh, you've got the capacity to orchestrate these, these events, hackathons and, and other events more effectively. Uh, you also have the capability to do the more structured traditional stuff more effectively also. So, uh, you know, to the, the point of uh, an organization just getting started, um, whether you follow a more traditional kind of checklist approach or you use some leaning activities or you go after a hackathon is really going to be driven by what your challenge is, what you're trying to solve. If, you've, if you know what the problem is, you go to a more traditional approach. If you aren't quite sure what the problem or options for solutions are, then one of these more innovative, broader approaches may be where you start. Uh, just keep in mind that you got to do that due diligence up front to plan it, to orchestrate it and to follow through. Um, and, again, more mature organizations have the capacity to do all of those things better. So, uh, so don't lose sight of, of that when, if you're just starting out and you want to go with a, a hack event. You still have some uh, people that have to come together to orchestrate and, and, and manage the follow-through.
0: Great. Speaking of hackathons, our next question is, can the operational workers participate in hackathons? And if not, how can managers use their ideas?
1: I would say yes, um, some of the, yeah, most of the organizations I've seen doing it, Shopify is a great example, they basically close the office for a full day, and everybody within the organization sits down and works on it, operational workers as well as, you know, the product development team, the marketing team, um, and the, again the idea then is you want to spread it out as far as you can um, to capture good ideas, and that way you're making sure that your improvements are also focused on a lot, a much broader scope as well. Um, if you don't have that luxury, you could then conduct more of a crowdsourcing activity for those people who can't participate in the hackathons. And that can help then be you know drive some of the topics in the hackathons or then be transferred into a work group or some kind of brainstorming session or, you know, workshop.
2: I think that, uh, you know, just adding a little bit here. Um, Ideally, you would avoid creating barriers, filters, or layers in this type of an event and to give everybody open access, including operational, hourly, and other types of workers that might not necessarily engage. But that means that you have to make the commitment that they have some time to contribute, to participate. Um, and whether it's via technology, whether it's, you know, at, you know, whether it's a, an hour, a day or whatever, it, there's some commitment there. Um, because if you if you funnel it through managers or, or focus groups or other techniques um, you, c- you can find that personal biases uh, will start to, to eliminate some of the, the ideas um, you know it may you may not get the full interaction between people that otherwise could have connected so if you can avoid building those layers and barriers uh, I think you're gonna be better off overall uh, and engaging and getting the best kind of collaboration and benefit from the events themselves. But uh, as I started to say here, that means there's a commitment that operational and hourly folks are allowed to contribute on the clock. It shouldn't have to be uh, extra time uh, that they put in for free.
0: Okay. Um, And again, with the um, hackathons and crowdsourcing ideas, how would you manage an idea that was submitted That might be an exciting, you know, an exciting idea, but it's not exactly aligned with the company's overall strategy.
1: Um, One of the things you kind of have to do is, both in crowdsourcing and in hackathons, you, because they're a contest, in in a way, you have clear criteria to judge each one of the submissions by. Um, Most often organizations will include some, one of the criteria has to be some kind of strategic alignment with your organization's values. And that helps identify, you know, which ones are going to provide direct value for what we're focusing on today versus what we could be focusing on tomorrow. Um, But one of the other key things about these these kind of events is that, that closing the loop with your participants you have to come back to the people who submitted the ideas and let them know, you know, A, this is going to go through, here's the project team that's going to be done, this is our estimated timeline for doing this. But if it's not chosen, you have to go back to them and explain why. And, and that's where those kind of criteria come in very, very handy. You know, you can some of the things that you look at is seeing that, you know, there's four or five already projects already, you know, for this topic, um, so we're going to combine them all into one or this isn't really fitting with, you know, our focus area for this year and make sure you keep a repository or something like that to keep these submissions going forward because just because it was a focus this year doesn't mean it can't be used again next year if, if, you know, the organization's values or what it's looking for changes. And just keeping kind of the clear why this happened to the people who submitted it is probably the most important thing you could do.
0: Um, Does an organization need consulting or facilitating help from an outside organization to pull off these events like hackathons?
1: No, you don't. Um, Some organizations do use, especially if it's a part of a larger event, um, some organizations will have like mini hackathons during some of their, you know, uh, customer events or some of the ones that they do talking about the product lines. Those probably, you have a larger audience, so you do need some kind of facilitation, but a lot of the times organizations can just rely on their HR team, their training departments, as well as whoever the sponsor is, to put this event together and manage it.
0: Okay, Um, just a couple more. What was um, the financial incentive for Liberty Bank's crowdsourcing contest granted?
1: Um, basically, that one was, uh, what they did was they had uh, first, second, and third place prizes. Um, it was just a few hundred dollars each. Um, they let the incentives be told right at the beginning, um, but they actually paid out the incentives before the process improvements were enacted, but once they were closed, they identified which ones they were going to focus on for the year, and they picked the top three. So. Probably within about a month, I think, after they closed the contest is when the rewards were were sent out. And it was very, very public. Um, Again, that whole engagement, closing the loop thing, and keeping the motivation was very important for them.
0: Okay. Um, Are there any statistics available on the benefits of Hack
1: Days? Most of the statistics you'll see on the benefit of Hack Days have to do with the product development part of it. Um, Part of that because it's easier to track that kind of ROI. Um, Most organizations, though, they kind of outline a lot more intangible benefits that happen because of hack days. So that employee engagement, um, Liberty Bank did measure theirs. They actually wound up with more of a 40% 40 engaged employee base for that one division. Um, Then other ones, again, coming up with, you know, comparing how many new product, you know, process improvement ideas you can get over time, you could look at the intrinsic value of each one. Um, most of the organizations don't kind of put out that type of process improvement ROI when they talk about hack days, but really what it boils down to is it improves collaboration, it improves employee engagement, and it helps organizations come up with new ideas, um, which again are so much more difficult to measure. Uh, some examples you can look at, IBM, however, it's also done a really good job managing some of their events as well Um, they've managed up to you know I think they said that you know they've had like over 150,000 people uh, participate in some of their events they've gotten 300,000 employees around the world to explore and solve problems since 2001 I also looked at some of the money some of the benefits they've had from the product development aspects as well
0: Okay, and then the final question that we have here today um, is what are organizations or what are the organizations that APQC works with using to document
2: workflows? Yeah, great uh, question. Jeff here, I'll start with that. Um, so um, what, what we find is that uh, when organizations are just starting, they typically, just as we talked about with, with some of these improvement events, start with the technology they already have at hand. Uh, So basic office automation, they may have some SharePoint capabilities or other collaborative capabilities. Um, They may have uh, basic office automation tools, whether it's a Microsoft Visio or something else. And they'll leverage those tools to get started. People are familiar with them. They're typically simpler to use than some of the more capable tools out there um, around full business process management and and the process management suites. So most organizations start with what they've got. But as you then grow and scale, especially for larger organizations that have a a number of employees and and you scale and and you start to capture more process documentation, et cetera, uh, migration into a more relational data structure that offers the the, uh, ability to connect the information together to create multiple views, et cetera, becomes, becomes necessary. Uh, growing beyond just basic office automation, and and we find that as part of that kind of growth and maturity for organizations as they go. Now, there are numerous tools out there, more than we could possibly talk about, and and I'm not going to mention them by name today, but each of them comes with their own strengths and and, uh, benefits and some of their weaknesses. And so what we have learned from organizations is, is that they decide how they're going to manage the basic governance, the types of process documentation and flows, Um, and what they want to accomplish from that, they can then put together a set of of requirements for those tools and down-select and get to a better solution. And and, and that's really what it comes down to. Um, Do you need to integrate it with your ERP for real-time performance dashboards that are process-based? That may take you one direction. Are you really looking to simply uh, become a knowledge aggregator across different um, systems of record and that's where um, you know, there are tools that are more, more tuned towards that, or APQC will soon release something called Mosaic that would also help in those types of instances. So, so I think it's start with what you've got, and as you need to scale and expand, uh, then you can build the requirements to select the right tool out there, many, many powerful tools. Just take the time to learn, define what you're trying to accomplish, and then pick the right tool, rather than jumping into a tool first. and and slowing your progress down because the tool is complex.
0: Holly, did you have anything to add to Jeff's response?
1: No, Jeff got it perfectly.
0: Great. Well, um, that's everything that we have today. That concludes all of the questions from our um, from our webinar. So I want to thank Lauren for her time and, and Holly and Jeff, of course. We appreciate this. and. Um, If anybody has any questions, you can uh, reach out to us at www.apqc.org, and um, that's it. So thanks again for your time, guys, and we hope to see you all next time.